Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. medical device industry is built on continuous improvement. And that's not just for devices. It means for the people building those devices. Greenlight Guru Academy is the ultimate resource to learn and grow for medical device professionals. From quick practical lessons to comprehensive certifications, you'll learn everything you need to know to keep up with the medical device industry. Visit www.greenlight.guru forward slash academy today to start learning the skills for tomorrow. Hey everyone, welcome back. This is Etienne Nichols, the host of today's episode. Today I got to talk with Chris Parker from LabCorp. He's the Associate Department Head of In Vivo Biocompatibility at Toxicon Corporation, also known as LabCorp. Usually we don't think about them as a In Vivo Biocompatibility office, but they do a lot of things besides take your blood, for example, for your doctor. So we're going to be talking about submission deficiencies with Chris. What are some of the things that uh, companies get dinged on in their submissions, for example, especially as it relates to their biocompatibility studies? These are some of the things that we got to discuss with Chris Parker in today's episode. Before we get to the episode, though, quick note, this episode was recorded at our booth at MDM West in Anaheim, California, one of the largest manufacturing trade shows in North America. Uh, We like to go to these trade shows, like to hear what's going on in the industry and kind of get the message out. So you may hear a little background noise in the audio, but hopefully the message comes through loud and clear. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is Etienne Nichols. Today, we're coming from live from Anaheim, California at the MDM West show. Today with me is Chris. Oh, Chris. I don't even know your last name. (laughs) Chris Parker. I work within our biocompatibility program. I'm the associate department head within biocompatibility at uh, LabCorp. So we used to be Toxicon. Uh, We joined the LabCorp umbrella last December, which has been a huge transition for us. It's opened up a lot of doors to really be able to serve uh, a lot of the sponsors from start to finish on anything drug or device uh, in their evaluation CRO testing programs. Okay. So... And we could draw, what we're going to be talking about is some different uh, biocompatibility and, and different assessments and, and, and ways you can maybe avoid deficiencies in your submissions. But maybe before we get into that, yeah. uh, because this is interesting to me, I was walking around the show and I saw the sign at your booth, LabCorp. Now, right. let's just go ahead and get the elephant in the room out of the way. So uh, when I think LabCorp, I think blood draw testing, but you know, don't hit me, but tell me, tell me where you guys uh, are coming from now. Right. So there's two major sides to the business. There's the, what you know, the, you go get your blood drawn in your doctor's office and they'll take it off and they'll do uh, all your blood analysis and your doctor will get the results back and tell you that you're healthy and your liver's functioning perfectly. They also do a lot of more uh, in vitro diagnostics. So they've developed uh, COVID tests and things like that. We have the other side of the business, which is more on the CRO side of things, where we now offer for medical devices and drugs all the way from the early stage discovery, uh, let's start the initial evaluations, does this even work like it's supposed to? And then we can carry it all the way through your biocompatibility or your final GLP studies. And then we can also cover it from the regulatory, start your trials and then post-market surveillance also. Okay. So, and it's funny because from a, a company standpoint, so... You know, most of you listeners, you know, the Global Medical Device Podcast is powered by Greenlight Guru. 
when I run into people at shows, they, you know, they, they'll say, oh, Greenlight Guru. Yeah, you guys are an ed educational platform, which is true. If you're familiar with our academy, you can see lots of different uh, ways that we're training the industry and, and best practices for the regulations and so forth. But, you know, ultimately, we sell quality management software. I, um, yeah, that's that's one aspect of the software that we have is, uh, is, is QMS function. So um, I, I'm a, a little bit familiar with the, you know, yep. ah, that is part of our business, but yeah. And I mean, the, the division that I came from used to be Toxicon. Okay. And then it was back last December 2021 when we were purchased and folded into the LabCorp to really offer more, round out a lot of the medical device offerings that they have. We've had a facility in San Carlos that does a lot of early stage uh, surgical modeling for vascular stent implantation in the cath lab, all the way through wound healing and orthopedics. Okay. They work with a lot of uh, companies in the area for doing those or bring surgeon, surgical teams in for training and things along those lines. And we in Toxicon are more out in, uh, in the outside of Boston. Now under a lab corp, we can really take it and round out a lot of the services from both the device and the drug side. Okay. So I know, so I wanted to get that out of the way just to kind of let sure. people know who you are, where you're coming from and so forth. But what we really wanted to talk about maybe today is, um, like you said, deficiency. So tell me what is, when, when, when we talk about def deficiencies, what are we even talking about here? So when a sponsor, well, we, we call them a sponsor in the GLP world, but when a manufacturer goes and they put their package together for their submission into FDA, if they're lucky and they're one of those chosen few, their submission is able to sail right through on the first time because they went ahead, they did the pre-submission process with FDA, they knew exactly what was going to be accepted, they worked with good labs, and they got all the way through the end from the regulatory standpoint. But in a fair number of instances, there are cases where the FDA issues, we call it a deficiency, it's otherwise known as a request for additional information, but generally what it is is they have a question or an issue with some part of the submission. And that could be anything from they have questions about the manufacturing process, something like if you had to go through a clinical trial, about a patient basis. But it also could be, again, like a manufacturing process about you didn't describe what mold release agent you're using well mm, enough. Yeah. Where we step in is, let's say you did your biocompatibility and you had a failure on an endpoint, you didn't address it well, or you didn't address the entire scope about what needs to be done for the safety of your device. And so we'll help them with that aspect of the deficiency with either with a risk assessment, writing a white, a white paper of sorts memo to help address the specific requirement, or in cases when retesting has to be done to meet what FDA is looking for, we can help them with that also. Okay. So someone goes through that situation, the deficiency is really when they've, they've done that submission and some of those things maybe need to be redone or addressed in some way. Right. Okay. So yeah. the, the scary thing is when you get a deficiency, in particular when it relates to a lot of biocompatibility, and that can be from the, the parts of 10.9.3 that are more on the, 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 the irritation and sensitization and cytotoxicity side, but there's also the analytical chemistry, the chemical characterization side. There are some pieces that can bridge across both that they may be specific to one or another. But one of the things we see from FDA when they send these deficiencies out is they offer two ways to go about it. And they say, we can either address this through either a memo or a risk assessment, or go ahead and do retesting again to address it the way they wanna see it. And so we get into a lot of the weeds sometimes of trying to help clarify exactly what avenue is going to be most efficient, whether it's be for speed or cost, or of course the science and the ultimate patient health matters most important to all this. 
So we'll sort out a lot of those details with the manufacturer on what's going to be best for their particular case. And then if we need to get on with FDA as sort of like their partner in it, uh, we'll, we'll help them along those ways also. Okay. So the thing that comes to my mind is the, the phrase cap, and I'll explain what I mean. So yep. you have the corrective action, which it sounds like maybe what we just discussed, the two pass forward to correct you know, your deficiency that was uncovered. Uh, what about the preventative way? How do we, is there a way to prevent this from even being, you know, have to happen? Right. So, of course. And one of the big things is having a lot of in, uh, upfront dialogue. And that's going to be upfront with FDA as part of a pre-submission. And not everyone does that sometimes because of timing or you weren't aware of the process or they didn't have the quite the consultant on board or the quality system to really push them into that path. The second way is to engage with a, again, a consultant or a lab who's very experienced in your type of device because we've worked through a lot of the challenges that your particular device may have already. And we can start to ask a lot of the questions and mitigate some of these things up front. So one of the things we come into very frequently is part of a biocompatibility is in some studies we can directly apply a physical device to a test system. But in some cases, for instance, you can't put a whole catheter onto a plate of cells or into a mouse. And so we have to extract the device. And so we mix some sort of vehicle, cell media, saline, cottonseed oil with a device. And we use that to extract out all the potential compounds of concern. And we put that into the test system. Mm. Well, those vehicles that we extract with may not necessarily be compatible with the actual physical device. So some of the more common ones are with stainless steel. You think stainless steel is stainless. Well, there's multiple grades of stainless and some of them, like 316 stainless is going to be great. It's marine grade. You can put it in the ocean and it'll be fine. But on 304, there's a reaction that happens within the chloride that will all of a sudden cause lots of rusting. So then whether it's we're having particulate changes or things like that, or if a clear tubing turns opaque or we get particulate matter or we get degradation during the extraction process, what does it mean clinically? And so that's where we can help sort of assess up front is, is there a way to avoid some of these changes after extraction that happen? Or we can pre-plan for it and try to mitigate around it, or at least have a plan to attack it and address it so it's more proactive instead of reactive. And that's always what we want to do and how we love educating people is to be proactive, not reactive. Yeah. Because then a little bit of time up front will save you a lot of time on the back end. And I want to come back to that. But before we do, so you mentioned the... The example, 304 stainless steel. Yep. What about the processes, like post-processing? Let's leave maybe geometry out for just a moment, but if we talk about passivation, citric versus, maybe I'm maybe I'm uh, nitric passivating right now. Right. And I'm gonna move to citric passivation. What are the, you know, is it, is it a known processing thing that we can do through a white paper um, justification or does there have to be testing? What are your, you know, kind of, I know that's kind of broad, but. Well, the tests are not to test that is the question. Yeah. <laughs> That's what everyone wants to do. And a lot of the standards, the way the, a lot of the current uh, biocompatibility standards are written, are that if you follow a good risk evaluation process, biological evaluation plan, chemical characterization, inform your biocompatibility and your biological report, is there are certain types of devices that because you're using known materials with known processes, you can document your way out of having to do testing. And that could be with a passivated stainless, it could be with certain fabrics. There was a new, uh, I, I can't remember the particular name, but the FDA issued a guidance on uh, fabrics that are used in medical devices uh, a few years ago. And essentially what they introduced is that on fabrics that are well known within medical uses, whether it's a simple medical uh, pillowcase, 
the pillowcase you use at home is the exact same yeah. one in the meme in the hospital, <laughs> but you know, it says it's being used on a patient, so you got to test it. But if you're not doing anything un unusual to it, maybe you're putting an antimicrobial coating on it or something or something to, uh, sure. to clean a cleaner, well, that changes it. But if you're working with no materials that have a long history, you can maybe get out of it and they offer instances for that based upon certain fabric and material types. There's another thing where they offer it up is uh, if you use uh, on your uh, ultrasound machine, for instance, the keyboard that's on the ultrasound machine. Well, if you can show that you're using the exact same interface that's used, let's say on a Nintendo, yeah. there's exact same materials that's used in a consumer application that have long history of safe use, oh. which is always like that, what does long history of safe use mean? Because process, but they do offer avenues, but you really have to show a lot of deep dive specifics to show how truly identical you are. Okay. And if you are different, it's that quantification that can really matter. And if there's too many unknowns, then you end up back with testing again. Okay. Now that's always a question in my mind, you know, do we, in a situation where you may have to test knowing how to determine, okay, well, I'd like to know for sure one way or another. Um, and I guess that's where we leave it up to the professionals who are, you know, um, the scientists with chemistry and, and so forth. So, right. um, but any, yeah. any thoughts or additional, how to figure that out before we even come to you? Um, how do we, how do we make that determination? Uh, uh, I don't even know what I'm trying to ask. But, yeah, <laughs> twist it into whatever you want. <laughs> well, a lot of it, so a lot of devices when they're being developed, you're doing it with an intent in mind, and right. you, either it's a completely novel new idea, or you saw an you saw a product and you said there's a, there's a greater market than a particular other manufacturer offers. We want to jump into it, or we want to improve it. And so, if you're going into the improving or the wanting to be another player in a market because it's wider than a particular manufacturer can service, well, then you've got a great place to start from if you can get the information, because not all the information they have about the, the secret sauce is locked away with uh, Colonel Sanders still. Right. So, okay. Uh, okay. Although those herbs and spices, you may or may not know, and it is with chemical characterization too. You may know 90% of an additive that's going in or a release agent. Well, that 90% could be well and good, but that other 10% they don't want to tell you, that mm. could be certainly something of concern. Well, that's when you can get involved with the toxicologist who can act as your, uh, your third-party go-around and help get you some of that information. Okay. But knowing sort of what avenue you're trying to target, if you're a Me Too or a, an improvement, the more you can get on the initial product going in, as much as you can, and then seeing what's out there, whether they publish papers about themselves or whatever it might be. If they came out of a university, there may be a publication on it. But going that avenue is a great spot. Uh, maybe you get lucky and you're working with a consultant who helped develop that other product, yeah. and then you're sort of like, uh, it's a win-win for everyone. Friend of a friend, right. yeah. Okay. I know a guy. Yeah. So, uh, so how early would it make sense to start involving someone such as yourself in the design process, does it make sense, you know, I have a working prototype, I know the materials I'm gonna be using, now let's talk about it. Um, I can imagine a situation where we might have a failure, so maybe I would have liked a little bit upstream involvement, but what are your thoughts? Right, so early stage in the prototyping, when you've got a materials list and you're saying, these are the ones we know have really good physical properties are gonna match with what we needed to do. It's got a certain durometer or whatever it might be. You can also start to map out sort of, well, we think in the manufacturing, we've engaged with a CMO or whatever it may be, and they've said, hey, it may be good to use this sort of silicone oil or whatever it might be. 
we can start to look at that from a material standpoint to just start checking boxes that you're not using anything that's of concern. So we get to the final product because ultimately you have your initial evaluation, but there's the final finished product that FFP that is in all the, when you get the final biocompatibility where the, the rubber hits the road, where it's going to be more, when you start putting everything together, you can get new compounds of concern and so on. But we can look at every single material and additive from step one and start to screen it if there's anything of concern from the beginning so you don't add something that you shouldn't have, you get to the end and wish you hadn't had to mm. rework. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I'm gonna ask you a question that's a little, it's, it's definitely outside my knowledge, so you feel free to say, hey, I'm not sure. I'm buckled uh, up. California, had, if, I rem if I'm going back to my manufacturing days, we, we were dealing with something, I think it was Prop 65. Yep. Can you speak to that? And, and from a medical device perspective, what do I need to know about that and, and how do I deal with it? So there's Prop 65 over in Europe. There's the, the CMRs you have to worry about, the, the uh, compounds, uh, the, the carcinogens, mutagens, and reproductive toxins. There's a whole host of compounds that at certain thresholds may be of concern or flat out don't want them included in a device at all. Or if they are in there, then you have to put some labeling on there. And so we can look at those from an early screening standpoint based upon concentrations, and we can risk assess what's in there. Maybe you know you have that secret sauce of all the material components, or we can do some initial uh, analytical screening on that and look for a particular uh, targeted analysis. And we can do that. So the Prop 65 and some of the new European regulations all sort of, let's try to keep out anything of potential concern that we can yeah. at any concentration. Because when you get into a lot of part 17, part 18 and biocompatibility, it's uh, your analytical thresholds and your uh, toxicological thresholds. And you wanna make sure you're not going above a certain level of concentration with your compound. Well, we obviously wanna always keep that in mind, but there's definitely places where we wanna keep them out starting from zero. So working with those, we can take out a lot of that risk up front if you engage with a toxicologist or an analytical group to help you with that assessment. So from a quality perspective, I would hope that companies would, you know, maybe take these things, like you said, the carcinogens and, and so forth in Europe or uh, Prop 65, those material lists, and, and really be implementing that from a quality global standpoint. Yes. Is it a requirement in other areas, though, right now, if I'm not going to manu or if I'm not going to sell in California, for example, or Europe? Um, how, are, how have you seen companies handle that? Just, just kind of out of curiosity. Well, one of the things we see with a lot of things is your initial indication may not be to enter Europe. Or we work with a lot of European companies and they say, we're just going for our CE mark now. And then we ask them, well, do you ever think about engaging with the US market? Mm -hmm. Well, we think we might get there in a few years, but we just want to do our CE mark now. Well, you can do it as an iterative process where you can attack the points that are specific to what you need now and then come back and do the rest later. But you may have an opportunity when you look at the total scope of what you might be getting into to lump it all into one big push and go and save yourself some time on the back end. Or there may be opportunities where we can offer up one set of uh, platforms of risk assessments of what it might be that can look at it all at one time in one risk assessment, for instance. Instead of having to do two, we yeah. can cover it all now. So you may be spending a little extra time or a little extra money now, but you may be saving yourself some time later so you're just ready to go from the get-go. And we see this with like some raw material people too. 
they're developing a raw material, but they don't know the quality system of the people they're going to sell to. Maybe some want to purchase a raw material that's been, the only one is a simple USP class six. Other manufacturers say their quality system, they don't want to buy a raw material unless it's at least had some level of ISO 1093 testing done. Let's get it more relevant to how our final finished products can be tested. Some further want to see it. Okay, you're a resin, great. But that resin may be used in a catheter or it may be used in a, a blood bag. Well, it's, it goes more beyond just looking at the traditional uh, material safety work, but let's engage it also into the specifics of how that material may be used in the final product. And so we can expand or contract some of those standards to meet not just USP or not just ISO 1093. We offer uh, a combined study that takes the elements of both of those together into one study so you can kill two birds in one stone. So instead of doing five studies, we can do one. Yeah. And sort of, and really uh, work it out to the advantage of the sponsor. Okay. Well, one of the other things I'd say about that, um, you know, sometimes we focus on the, the cost efficiency or I'm only, I'm only focused on Europe right now or, what, or wherever it may be. Um, but at the same time, I'll quote one of uh, the long, longtime guests of the podcast, Mike Drew, says, quality is quality no matter where you stand on the earth. And, you know, um, our goal at Greenlight Grew and, and with the Global Medical Device Podcast is to improve the quality of life. And I would hope, you know, our, our, uh, um, the medical device companies are doing the same. So that's um, interesting. And I think it's good advice. Go ahead and, you know, from an economic perspective or even from, a, you know, especially from a quality perspective, go ahead and kill those two or five birds with one stone. I love that. I mean, when it comes back to quality, one of the things we see with FDA is with biocompatibility, it can take a lot of units of device, final finished manufactured process sterilized device. And it can take a lot of them in some instances to complete your evaluations. And if you're a large device, like a, like a 150 centimeter long uh, a guide wire, for instance, you have some surface area, you have some surface area to yourself. So it may not require as many units, but when we start getting into really small things, let's say a, uh, a, a stent or a vaginal prolapse tissue tack. Those may be less than a square centimeter in uh, surface area per unit. And so it may take literally 10,000 units to complete testing. Well, that's obviously a burden on the manufacturer. And so they may want to sort of skirt around some of the standard ISO 10 and 312 surface area extraction ratios. And well, this is what one person, a person's only going to get one, maybe two stents in their lifetime. So I only want to put one or two stents in my extracts. Ah. Well, the FDA says, well, that's not how the standards are written. And that's not how the straight quality is because we don't, we want to biocompatibility in a lot of senses, looking at things in an exaggerated condition to look for worse cases, whether it's an off label or an overdose or whatever it might be. And so they don't necessarily look at it from the economic impact. They want it done the right way the first time, the best interest of the patient and trying to skirt around for whatever it's a timeline or an economic standpoint. And it's, of course, a burden in some cases on the manufacturer. But we want to see it done right in the best interest of the patient the first time. And for the long term, you know, if you think about it, if this if this device is going into your son, for example, or your daughter, you know, you want that the very best that there could be. So that, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Um, other, did you have something to add to that? Nope. Or the other question I had about that was, so we kind of mentioned the EU. Um, I know there's the, and it's a little, again, on the, the fringe of my knowledge, but the post-clinical, uh, uh, the post-clinical plans. 
where you have to be, what am I saying, post-market clinical plans, um, where you're, you're now commercializing, but you still need to do a bit of clinical testing and so forth. Um, have you helped with that, or is that something you uh, um, have any recommendations or you know, thoughts on? Well, so I'm the biocompatibility guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I will say as part of LabCorp, though, is we do have a tremendously huge uh, clinic, uh, so regulatory group, clinical trials group, and then a post-surveillance uh, group, right. a post-marketing group. And so we do offer that where they do engage it, where they're starting to look for some of that feedback. And then they're always working, uh, whether you engage us or any uh, other provider, is a lot of that uh, clinical trial information or the post-marketing information can feed back really importantly into design changes into future studies based upon patient feedback. So for sure, we need to integrate a lot of those together. Uh, but that is something that is uh, very important for the device development. Yeah. I had mentioned that I'd come back to this. It just popped into my head to maybe actually do it. Um, we mentioned when we were talking about deficiency. So if we kind of come full circle and talk about our original topic, we, and I've covered a lot of good ground and I appreciate all of your knowledge. Of course. Um, one of the things we mentioned was there's still kind of those two paths, the corrective action versus the preventative action. I don't know if we can attach a dollar amount necessarily, but if you have that delay due to a deficiency or, you know, that back and forth that maybe the company wasn't expecting, um, can you attach value to that? You know, what's, what's the value to the company? Sometimes with these deficiencies, you may have days to respond, you may have months to respond, and maybe you have to file for extensions. And so if you're a really early stage company and you're hinging on your one first product getting through to start the revenue and you've got investor expectations and you've got your own personal time and blood and sweat and tears into this, it means a lot. From a larger company, there's still a lot of expectations on there because it means revenue, it means jobs, it means a lot of different aspects. And so a single day can mean thousands or millions, depending on what you're doing. And so I don't know if you can attach a specific, because of a lot of the cases, but especially for those smaller companies, not having to do those weeks and months of remedial work, because remedial work also costs yeah. more money. I mean, rework, everyone <laughs> hates rework. In your manufacturing line, you realize that your stamper all of a sudden is off. Then you have to do a rework that has an attributable direct cost. So that's where the quality system really comes in to avoid a lot of those things. And we're engaging with the right people up front. We can help even predict what may happen. And we can set those plans in motion to remediate it before we even get into it. Yeah. You mentioned that word remediation, and I just cringe. You know, uh, I mean, we hate yeah, it. The, having had to manage, you know, aging kappas and so forth, just y'all the dread. Right. Um, that makes a lot of sense. So the other thing you mentioned there was the quality management system, which of course, you know, you're speaking our language, um, you know, implementing quality from the beginning, those well-defined user needs, well-defined de design inputs that really require or uh, define all the different things that are going to lead to the, the type of testing that you're talking about. That makes right. That's cool. So I am close on time. So I wanted to know, Beautiful. though, before we end this out, any thoughts, advice, recommendations to our listeners before we shut it down? The biggest thing is know who you're working with and work with an expert. If you're engaging with a consultant, interview them, understand where their expertise may lie. Do they have expertise in your particular product? And that goes for any of your labs or toxicologists or anyone you may use. Make sure they understand your exact your exact scenario and what you're trying to accomplish. 
and let them help you get there. Try not to reinvent the wheel because we have standards, we have practices, there are other similar devices out there in some cases and a lot can be learned from them. And a standard is called a standard, similar to a standard operating procedure is a standard operating procedure for a reason, is because it maps out what's gonna be expected up to what's currently the best science and regulatory and whatever it might be out there for your particular case. So know who you're working with, make sure they understand you and let them help guide you if you need that. And they'll be your partner along the way and, and really act as your partner versus just your service provider. Yeah, that very good advice. You know, the thing that I'm gonna take away from that is like you said, don't reinvent the wheel. Everybody wants to be a breakthrough device, but really you think about the aggregation of marginal gains. You want, you know, the small things that we're doing to improve the quality of life makes a big difference over the long, long hauls, but yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, I won't just keep repeating what you say, but it just sounds so smart and I just wanna, you know. So thank you all for listening. You've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. As I mentioned, we're at the MDNM West show. So if you hear that noise in the background, I started to say music. Yeah, a manufacturing guy, I guess that's music tires. I don't know. Uh, well, the uh, auto stampers are out front. So they're, they're making uh, grills for trucks right now. <laughs> so, okay, so maybe we're, a li we're, we're moving away from medical device in certain manufacturing areas, but uh, all the same. Uh, thank you for taking the time, Chris. Uh, it's a pleasure talking to you today. Appreciate you being a guest on the Global Medical Device Podcast. And we will see you all next time. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks. The best medical device companies don't just follow the rules. They lead with quality. At Greenlight Guru, we try to do the same. Our medical device success platform is based on the latest FDA and ISO standards, as well as the best practices of medical device manufacturers who lead the industry with products of the highest quality. If you're ready to bring safer, better medical devices to market faster, contact greenlight.guru today.